Hey, everybody, it's Glenn Thrush with Politico's Off Message Podcast, episode 58, and alas, the final Off Message Podcast that I'm going to appear on. Uh, I am leaving. I don't know if you folks know this. Some of you do, some of you don't. I'm going to be uh, starting on January 3rd, working for the New York Times and leaving Politico. Uh, someone uh, is going to be replacing me in this particular chair, and uh, there are going to be a, a lot of really great podcasts being developed uh, by my partner in crime, Bridget Mulcahy, with whom none of this uh, would have been possible. So uh, I want to start off with a big shout out for Bridget, who's been with me every step of the way. Whatever you liked about this, you pretty much give 50% or more like 60% to Bridget for mellowing me out and telling me when I was talking too much, like right now. <laughs> um, but really, without her judgment, without her technical expertise, and, and she's also a hell, of a hell of a fun person to be out on the road with. Anyway, uh, I, just, I don't want to get too sentimental uh, today, but I do want to talk a little bit about uh, the most sentimental topic of all, how I got into doing this, why I really enjoy it. Uh, and I've actually put some thought about this in the last couple of days, and like everything else, it comes down to my, my folks, my parents. My mother was the best listener I have ever known in my entire life. Back in the 1970s, when you actually had to pay for your long-distance bill, we would run up three and $400 long-distance bills because my mother would be sitting and talking to her friends who were scattered around the country, uh, and you really wouldn't hear her say anything. She, you would just hear her listening to other people. She just had this incredible gift uh, for listening, uh, which I have inherited, again, uh, about 50% of. Um, the, the most extraordinary thing uh, about my mom is uh, you would go into a supermarket with her, and she would tell you to go go up to the aisle and get some wooden spoons or go up to the aisle and get some Brillo pads. And you would come back, and she would be locked in conversation with a person she had met 10 seconds later. And more often than not, this person would be hugging her and crying on her shoulder. This was the power that she had in terms of opening people up and, and really listening to them. And also, more than anything else, respecting uh, the fact that everybody had their story to tell. Uh, big, uh, she died too young. It would have been nice to have her around to see some of this stuff, to listen to some of this stuff, to, to give me some feedback. But... To her, I owe an enormous debt of gratitude. Uh, to the extent to which I'm decent at this, I owe it uh, to my mom. My dad was a different kind of character. <laughs> he was five foot six inches tall. He died in 2010 after a long struggle, a struggle with Alzheimer's. Uh, and he was uh, a mechanical genius and uh, a guy who was a little bit at war with the world. Um, he really, his favorite expression that he would use uh, copiously, particularly when talking with me, was bullshit. You would say something to Richard Thrush, and he would say, bullshit. <laughs> I think that is kind of the other half of my whole shtick, is the fact that I have a healthy sense of skepticism. So it's pretty clear for me uh, how I uh, came about wanting to do this kind of work. Um, when I say it's clear to me, of course, it took two decades of therapy, but... Uh, my folks are really uh, the reason I got into journalism and I think why podcasting in particular is appealing to me. Uh, my father also was a really, really good listener. So insofar uh, as I have been successful at this, it has been uh, through the listening, uh, less so the talking. So I will cut it off right there. The, the one thing I do want to say, though, however, I have gotten hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wonderful emails and texts uh, from people over the past year, and we've done this for about a year, um, really being unbelievably supportive, uh, offering up suggestions on how I could improve, uh, advice on, on, on how to do the show better, uh, political observations, sometimes criticism. But the vast majority of people have been incredibly generous and really, really encouraging. This has been just one of the best experiences of my life, uh, both professionally and personally. Uh, and I, 2016, for a lot of people, was a lousy year. Uh, this really got me through the year. And again, the, the last folks I'd like to thank are the guests. Um, when we first started doing this, the idea was to kind of copy Mark Maron, who, who Bridget and I both adored. And, and what was cool about Mark Maron is he's a little bit older than me. But he, too, had had kind of a journeyman's career. So he'd been, he'd been at the bottom, middle and working his way up kind of late in life in his profession. So he had a real view of, 
of all the layers of his profession, and he loves show business. I mean, he really digs it. So he would be interviewing a whole broad range of people in that business with a real curiosity about how they did their job, what their experience was like. I felt I was the Mark Marin of politics. Um, I love politicians, and I love journalists. So when I go on Twitter and I see people pissing all over reporters and, and politicians, you know, obviously criticism is important, it's valid, but you're talking about my people here. <laughs> and the one question that I had, the one question that I had when we were doing this, would politicians who get paid uh, to obfuscate, to create false images, to project their, their best side, would politicians open up to me in the way that... Uh, Entertainers or stand-up comics would open up to Mark Marin, and you know what? It turned out they did. It turned out that everybody has a story to tell. And as my mother taught me, if you're respectful, if you really listen, if you have an open mind, an open heart, people will tell you their stories. So overall, I'd like to thank everybody for giving me the opportunity to allow other people to tell their stories. And here is Chuck Todd. So you're from Miami, right? I am from Miami. What'd you folks do? Born, born and raised. So my dad was, he had a lot of jobs. Um, he wasn't um, successfully employed very often. Um, but my dad, when I was really young, was a record uh, company local promoter. So he worked for A&M Records and he worked for Atlantic as sort of the local rep. The evidence I have of this is I probably have as large of a vinyl collection as anybody can have of records that have never been sold, meaning there are all these like A&M promotion, and of course no it's vinyl, I won't get rid of it, but I, like some of it is, you know, it was always kind of cool when I was, as I was becoming uh, an adolescent and then started listening to my own music, and I, I remember, you know, as anybody, you just, you know, every 12-year-old or 13-year-old thinks they've discovered Led Zeppelin, Right. Um, and they get into their Led Zeppelin, and I remember. Because they were Atlantic, right? Swan Song they were Atlantic, like exactly. Yeah, yeah. Look at you. That Sorry. was what my dad could do. My dad, he's, <laughs> he was that annoying guy. Literally, the song would hit the radio, and he knew the label, you know, the producer, all of that stuff. It's what he, you know. Anyway, that's what he did. It was early. And anyway, I, when, when I realized sort of the depth of his knowledge of the record industry, Led Zeppelin four. You know, the untitled sure. Left Up and Four, Zofo, whatever everybody wants to call it. Everybody called it their own thing, Zofo, whatever right. that thing was. And I'd be <laughs> like, you know, and I didn't, my dad would say, oh, you know, I, I, I own some Led Zeppelin. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like, I didn't believe him. And boom, one, two, and three come out in that, you know, with the with the nice little. Wow. Well, it, the beautiful albums, except, of course, with the faded, you know, so the, the browning, because it probably had been through one too many AC leaks in our apartment. <laughs> mildew, that nice mildew. The mildew. Smell. Oh, I've got. All of my vinyl has some form of mildew, but over time, it warps into place, is what I've Well, noticed. Zeppelin Three had that amazing album cover. I forgot the name of the it's guy. It's not good anymore. The one my version with of the rotating yes. wheel on it. It's a great look. All of their covers were interesting. They did a lot of There was of a great... name of a guy who did them all, and oh, he I, did yeah. all. The other, okay, but total rando here. Wasn't Phil Hartman? Did you know this about Phil Hartman? Phil Hartman started off his his career as a, an album uh, jacket designer. I didn't know. I had no idea. That's and like he did a couple of famous ones, like Ario Speedwagon, maybe The Cars. Oh, told... Ario Speedwagon always looked like uh, yeah. somebody was on L uh, LSD. Well, I think things. I think Those they were, were actually. On LSD. <laughs> That's what makes the the best album covers, right? <laughs> I heard it from a friend who heard it from a friend. Uh, anyway, so that was my dad. And, uh, <clears throat> my mom, um, my mom was the one that always had two jobs. Like what kind um, of jobs? Just so she was uh, always retail. She worked for uh, one company for a long time, was a district manager, Park Lane. Then she went into real estate after my dad died. Uh, and How old she, was your dad? Um, uh, my dad was 40 when he died. I was 16. Um, so What he, did he, can I, am I allowed? Sure, no, no, yeah. no, no, he died of, um, actually was having a lengthy conversation about my wife about this lately, because he died of hep C, of hepatitis C, in 1988. And it's been interesting to see the advertising lately right. come out that says, hey, if you're a baby boomer, you've been, ex you're most likely, you're sus most susceptible right. to hepatitis C, and there's various reasons for it. The biggest one is blood transfusions. Right. My dad was in a bad car accident when he was two, 19 or 20, right. um, down in the Keys, and uh, he did get a blood transfusion. And that is, t they think, 18 years or 15 years later, 
that that was that it sort of was dormant and it destroys the liver right destroys the liver um drinking doesn't help right when you're a drinker my father was a was a drinker um so it, it may have sped up the virus um a, a little bit but um it has been sort of disconcerting i'll be honest that here i think i've always grown up in the modern world right right you and i have grown up in the modern world right but to know that Half a life ago, right? They couldn't cure the disease that my father had. Today, do you see they, it? It's containable. Today, they give yeah. him a couple of pills, That's and right. he's fine. That's and, right. They have the one pill now. And I'm yeah. just—I have to say—they had no clue what to do about hepatitis C right. in 1988. And literally, they were—he was on the liver transplant list. He wasn't stable enough for it. Um, or as I used to say, he wasn't Mickey Mantle, so he couldn't yep. get three of them. Yep. Um, I, I just wanted one. Um, for for the old man, but it is one of those that has been hard to watch. I have, um, and this is also the month that he died. November's the month that he died. But I've had a hard time seeing that PSA lately about Hep C because it's like I can see ah! it. My mother died. I should. Well, I don't. My mother died when uh, she was fifty of a brain aneurysm, and that was also preventable now. Preventable because she what she died of was she had to have the the iodine transfusion and she was allergic to shellfish so it was so she essentially died of the allergic reaction to the shellfish and now they could do it through imaging so we just you're on the cusp of it you're 5 7 years away right. i've i've had that same right you just have it and it's right like in nothing the middle, you can do about right it in the middle yeah you're just like god but for it's like a lost love it's like it's this feeling of yearning yeah 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 i know exactly how you feel well yeah. let's move on to something fun sure no but i mean like um uh but, but let's talk about your dad again for a second. You were sitting here in your office at, at NBC, mm-hmm. and you got a lot of stuff. <laughs> and it's not just a lot of stuff. It's a lot of interesting stuff. You have a lot of different disparate interests. It sounds to me like your dad was a stuff guy. Not, uh, and I mean sort of intellectually, artistically. Yeah. He was an accumulator of fact. He was an accumulator of observation. Does he sound – is That's that an interesting sorta? way of describing it. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Pretty eclectic. Um, he was – the thing, the skill that he had that I've always was in awe of is that he was, he he know he learned how to speed read. Really, and it is a and, and I remember, and I just didn't believe he right. read a couple of these books, right. and I literally quizzed him, and I and he did, and then he taught me, and they, I've learned a little bit how to do this by reading like a graph at a paragraph at a time. You read diagonally is oh, how really? is actually how he described it, how he described it for himself. Now I'm sure other people who are proficient right. in actual speed reading and how it, you know. Right. But essentially, he said the way his mind works, if you read diagonally, right, you're grabbing words in a paragraph. Right. You take a paragraph and you're essentially from the top left corner to the bottom right corner right. and you read that way. Um, it is, that's, it, it, so as a skimming tool, I've right. always found that Me um, too. very helpful. I still can't find myself a full-fledged speed reader that day, but he, that was something, and he was just, no doubt he had disparate interests, um, Here's what I've always said. My my father sort of had he he had a he had a rough childhood. He 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 grew up in a way that today it, it, it had we grown up sort of semi single parent we'd be fine. But when you grew up semi single parent in the fifties and sixties, tough. And I say semi, but when the when the father is yep. off with another woman back and forth, it's a tough. It's a lot tougher. It was a lot tougher on his mother right, then. Right. Um, and she had her own challenges, so it gave challenges to him. The bottom line is, I, I've just, and I and I, th- I I feel like I am finishing the career my father always should have should have pursued. He I, would have been very good at this. I feel he never good. got there, and um, it is. I'm sorry, we can't talk about this job. With my dad, I learned how to interview by talking to my dad. Um, was he somebody? I, I have a, when you have a parent like that, it makes you a better listener. It makes you a more sensitive listener. It makes you uh, more sensitive to sort of where they're coming from. How did you sort of because you're you're a you're a good listener. You're an engaging conversationalist. Mm-hmm. Where do you think you sort of picked that up? Oh, 100 percent from him. My dad was one of those, uh, and somebody else gave somebody else made the observation once, and my dad always did it intuitively. So my my dad was an extraordinarily private person, and he. Um, wanted that for us and it was always this idea I was an only child and he always used to say look it's the the three of us we have we're you know we're an open book but what happens here stays here you know it was always this side so he's an extraordinarily private person but he was always the guy everybody loved to hang out with he was the affable guy he was and the trick was 
that he and I when somebody said this to me years later, not about my father, but it going back and it was it's actually uh, James Carver one time uh, said it to me. Uh, and I'll, so we're having a uh, we're, we're having a working lunch. Right. And he we essentially ran out of stuff to talk about. This is very Yeah, this is was very early on. It's like 20 years and ago. people should know he's he's just a blast uh, he is yeah. but it was like one of those things and yeah. we were specifically working on an idea when i was at hotline working yeah. on an idea um and we literally were like okay we were done but we were stuck having to finish our meal it was right. just like it was not personal it was right. just sort of and he goes you know and i'm not going to try to do a carvel <laughs> wants to do a carvel he goes let me give you a piece of advice whenever you talk to somebody don't talk about yourself. Just talk about their children. Right. He said, if you talk about their children, they'll think you're the greatest person in the world. Oh, yeah. You know, and it was sort of like, and he's like, well, A, he's right. It was it was sort of a salesman trick. Right. Right. And it's essentially, my dad was very good at always making people that, you know, he was, he wanted to be the life of the party with, right. with booze a little bit. Right. Um, and, and we always had, you know, we may not have a lot of money, but boy, we had to make sure we had every single um potential mixed the ingredients for a mixed drink for anybody that might walk into the house at any moment in time. Remember those diner menus that would have like the, uh, Oh, he was that, <laughs> like that was so, um, but, but it was all about, so when you say it's listening, it's all about making about somebody else. Oh, always, always, always. Yeah. And that, yeah. And that in sort of like, and that is sort of the life I live. And I find it very difficult. Like, what, I've been on air with you. You're very disciplined about that, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I sometimes, as I'm learning how to do this, which mm-hmm. t- it takes a lot of doing, it, I think the bigger component of this is figuring out when to really shut the hell up, um, which I'll, I'll do more of right now. Uh, so you went it's away. It's tough on podcasts, I'll be honest. As a podcast listener, yeah. Yeah. it's the thing I'm trying to discover with podcasts. I think people want the conversation. Well, I like it. I mean, it makes me this feel is not bad. an interview. It's a conversation. No, that's the whole thing. And yeah. I th- and I find the reason I started doing this was because I wanted to repeat my off the record interactions with people. I know. In a way and that it's, they I, I'm with you. It's trying to recreate it. <clears throat> and it's like what's frustrating about the podcast format. And I say this yeah. loving it at the same time yeah. is that why can't we get this on television? Like, why is this so difficult to get? What is it about the gosh darn camera? <laughs> Answer your answer that question. Well, same thing with the briefing room. I don't right? know. Right. I mean, I think part of it is I don't want to, my, uh, you know, what, what would keep me from slouching and doing this, right? right? You don't want to, you, you feel that there's a formality to television, even in an informal setting, that you feel like you have to, like a minimum bar. But is there? Like, we, I, you know what I mean? I, I, I well, look, if Trump can change it for politicians. Why can't, right? That's right. And I, and I have been in this, I don't know, like, why can't we, create this model. And I think part of it is people seek, I, 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 I've answered my own question on this in this respect. A podcast is for people that want more. That's right. In television, you are there to, to, to get people that are both passive and active uh, on your right. story, whether right. they're passively interested or actively and interested. And you'll get attacked. Podcast is yes. about you're actively interested. So that, that there, there, that, so it is, so you don't have to you don't have to explain, oh, by the way, so-and-so right. was this person, and so-and-so right. was that person. On-demand versus ambient. But um, I am, but it is making me long, like, how do we at least bring this part of the... Of, of Sid Caesar had a great line when, when he shut down uh, your show of shows, uh, he said... I love that you say it's your show of shows as if, like, no. me working at NBC Today somehow made me, like, you know, and Grant day. Tinker, you know, somehow tinkered with May it. May he rest in peace. May he rest in peace. The, um, no, but he, his line was, why did he stop his show when it was at the height of his popularity? It was because more people were buying TVs and the audience was less, less uh, informed. And he said the room got too big. That's an interesting way of doing it. I do think, so you work at a publication that some people say that the publication I worked at was sort of the precursor to it. Totally. The hotline precursor to the political. Yep. Um, and you know what's interesting is I root, I was rooting for the idea of Politico because I wanted the room bigger. Right. I thought this was great. Right. I really think. Um. I don't know how I don't know if I would argue that today. It's funny you say that. I think the size I think there are th- the 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 bigger the room, the certain things you you can't say analytically that you did in a smaller room. I agree. On politics. And it's not this is not about whether it's just that the bigger room doesn't hear what you're trying to say. It's not to say that they they can't they're not sophisticated. It's not about a sophistication, but it's about speaking in a shorthand. 
and speaking in a professional shorthand that when you say it to uh, a bigger room, people will take offense to it in ways that were never designed to be offensive. It was simply designed to be academic. Well, let's extend the metaphor even more. I think it's a different dynamic. I think the room is not only bigger, but you've got people who are talking to each other while you're talking Mm -hmm. and hecklers. Right, they're actually not listening. Which <laughs> right. is, it's like giving a speech, and everybody is co- talking and trackers, right at the same and time. They come, and yeah. there's a bunch of people who are coming to that room with the specific purpose of fucking with you. So, like, which I'm a big, uh, I'm not a big fan of all this bedwetting self analysis. I think, on the aggregate, media did fine. I think like anybody who needed to know anything about either of these two candidates had more than enough information to make an informed. Look, choice. I've thought about this a long time. I mean, the the, the issue, and I and I've been I've been working on an op-ed that I haven't decided whether I even want to publish yeah. or not. But it's more of trying to get to this arc of like, how did we get here? Where did how did we go? Where the, there is this issue where the public doesn't trust the so-called mainstream media, and it, it's you know, I I keep. What I do is I, I'll start five years, and I'm like, no, you have to go back further. Nope, you have to go back further. And I, and I go back. You know, first I say, boy, does it begin with when, we, when, we, when television media started hiring political practitioners mm-hmm. to be members of the media? Did right. it start then? And then I thought, no, you could actually go back this way. You know what I mean? It, you can keep going back. I think we're in a cycle. I mean, one of the things is don't forget rumor and innuendo outpaced factual reporting in the 19th century constant right okay constantly go read about any contentious presidential election between uh basically post-civil war hey people talk about Um, hamilton that's right no it looks right no no no. (laughs) so the point is is that we we have been through this stage before right i will say this i think the current iteration of the press where we went from where the press was the hero of Vietnam. Right. And the press was the hero of Watergate. Right. Okay. This was hero journalism. You know, sort of, you know, the same type of journalism still being practiced today. It's just that more more people have decided to take a rooting interest into the information. Right. Yeah. there, There is that, right, affirmation versus information. But I am frustrated that there are a handful of loud partisan voices that are members of the bigger picture media yeah that somehow their inaccurate and aggressive agendas paint those who are just practicing straightforward like right. what happened today and right. why did it matter right you know two most important questions i deal with what and why right more importantly than anything else right uh, and I believe my job's the why more than it is any uh, you know that that's why nbc hired me for why not right. for what and it's just drowned out, right? It's just that it's so loud over on the fringes, the big names, that we've eroded that over time. And, and then look, and then the other thing is we've not defended our industry. Well, that I think is a big one because it drives I, me batty. Be, it drives me nuts. I think because we have been the subject of a systematic campaign to discredit us Correct. for three decades. Oh, it starts with yep. it, look. I, I look. It, Remember Reed Irvine? Yeah, that, that almost no, no, seems no, no. like it all kids started with. Now. It all started. Yeah. It was the, it was the, Nick's and I want. I don't put this ideologically. Cause I want right. to. This is not about conservatives. This was right. about Nixon defenders. Remember, there was Nixon defenders post post Watergate. Yep. That were not with the rest of the Republican yep. Party. It was Nixon defenders that made it their an obsession to get Woodward and Bernstein. Right. Right. And it was it all began there, and that is the root. Roger Ailes was part of that group. Right. People forget that. Right. And it sort so of. So was Roger Stone. You know, and it's sort of right. No, in many <laughs> yeah. ways, Ailes, it, it, this is the ultimate sort of like, here we are. Totally. And the system that Ailes and Stone have been trying to create for right. 40 years, here we are. You got to wonder, though, if this is the, if is this the final, is this the fruit ripening and falling off the tree or is it a new tree? There you go. Right. I mean, that's I, the I, question. It is. Is it. Is this the right? Is this the end or the beginning? Right. So, okay. So, let's talk a little bit about. Well, the, uh, let's talk a little bit about the the campaign. Let me hit you with uh, the one uh, potential criticism uh, that I have. Tell me a little bit about why this is just totally my hobby horse. Tell me how 
from sort of an arms race perspective? Because I think what people fail to realize is just how competitive your particular seat is uh, in terms of booking and stuff. Mm-hmm. How did this phenomenon of Trump being able to call into the Sunday shows, explain to me the evolution of that and how you feel about it now? Uh, it was copycat. I'm just going to straight up saying I didn't want to do it. Yeah. A uh, competitor did it first. I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not. I'm not going to sit here and whine about that. I, you know, it was George, I um, think, right? I don't know who did it first. Okay. If it was George right. or, or okay. I can tell you, we we did it not in response to George. We did it in response to somebody else who did okay. it, and we felt we felt trapped. It was one of those you you, you feel as if you know you, you feel as if well you can have it that way or have nothing, right? And at the end of the day, and this is where I do think we in the media yeah. looked silly arguing about this. Because I will make the case in defending as much as I didn't like the phoners either. Right. And I just finally stood my ground and and was the first Sunday show to say no more. Others did it. And we have stood stand pat. And I'm not going to do it anymore. Um, I I can't. We we have it a rationale in 15. Fine. Once 16 started, we didn't do it again. But I will say this. I I don't I think a satellite interview is just as hard to. control as a phone interview yes okay the phone interviews right. i actually th- think uh i did my best to get something out of the phone interviews um if they were the only thing we were getting in lieu of like face-to-faces it would have even it, it would have been more problematic but the public we were arguing about this and this this is the stuff that wait, i wait, think wait, wait. that me, i think the, yeah. the the sort of the public cri- criticism of the media is so insular and is the fact that we were having these arguments and, and, and all of the big J journalists were like lecturing us. And first of all, every print reporter out there, you know what? How many, you let me know how many telephone interviews you've oh, done, yeah. how many email interviews, all that stuff. It, there was no criticism I accepted less <laughs> that I had, that I took less seriously than criticism from a print reporter about doing a phoner. I'm sorry. Print reporters only do phoners. No, we do off the, and we do off the, and we, we and, do, and you, yeah. right, I'm no, sorry. No, it was it. like, it was the, the worst criticism was the criticism that came from those, the, from, from those folks. Right. Uh, the, like unacceptable. But overall, it made us look ridiculous. Well, it's, I, I think. And me, that's the part of this that I thought. It's not like, the look, it's not the Meaning look, us fighting about it made us look oh, ridiculous. Oh no, here's, here's where, I'll, I'll give you one point of disagreement. And by the way, I take, you're totally right on the print reporter stuff, but you do have a different platform. There's no and, doubt, and, and I want to make keep it special. And this is why. And this is a dude. Hold on, I, you know, and I, a, a mutual source of ours who we were talking about in the Trump uh, camp before we we turned on record here, said this to me that Trump never has walked off a set, and said, "How did I sound?" All he wants to know is how he looks. Right? The visuals for Trump are key. And you know something? He's smarter than you or me about this stuff. Oh, I have interviewed yeah, him yeah. multiple times. Yeah. The amount of time he spends after the interview is over with the sound off. He wants to see what it all looked like. He will watch the whole thing with he, mute. Are you kidding me? No. So he'll sit there and kind of look will at watch, the sound off? Yep. He's very, very mindful. He's a very visual guy. Very, well, you saw, um, I, I thought, and by the way, it wasn't surprising me. I saw an interview that um, uh, our, our friend Chris Eliza did with yeah. the media uh, consultant for Trump who made the ads. And if he... He talked about how he decided to hire an apprentice, uh, a, a, a crew that had shot the apprentice, knew how to shoot him, and said the same, shared the same story about how attentive Trump was to visuals. In fact, and, and, and this guy t- loved it because right. this was the first candidate that didn't care about the script as much as he cared about the visuals. He said, we'll worry about the script later. Let's look at the visuals. The visual issue with him is not just for himself. He is very much, this is, you know, he... He thinks this way. And I look, it's an important insight um, in just understanding well, him. But the visual stuff is very real beyond just himself. And, it, okay, to take it one step further, his aesthetic is different than ours. That's the other thing. Oh, right. What you think looks right. good and what so I the swear. Scowl. So this is something I asked early on. I was yeah. like, I think Kellyanne or somebody, or maybe even Roger, where I was like, what's with this goddamn scowl all the time? Like, who thinks, like... Remember crippled, first of all, the book was called Crippled America. And I was like, that's the craziest, that's the most anti-Reagan thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. Like, who the hell, and puts this look on the front page like he's in a windstorm, right? Like he's squinting in a windstorm. Uh, He thinks, and he turned out to be right, that that is a projection of strength. Well, yes. Here's here's another 
observation that drives me crazy. Yeah. Do you know what? I've never seen him laugh. Trump? Yeah. Laugh. Ask yourself. Like actually have an honest reaction and laugh at someone's joke. Yeah. No. And I challenge somebody to find him laughing, and, and that person's yet to find an example of him laughing. He's, he'll smile, but he smiles appropriately. Watch him at the. Uh, watch him at the. Uh, I watch him at the Al course, Smith dinner. Oh, the correspondence dinner. That's oh, right. He's not laughing. He'll laugh at his own joke a little no, no, bit. No, a little bit. He doesn't really laugh. He looks for others to laugh. He's oh. very. It, it's a. It, it. It is just a weird. Uh, it was one of those things that over time, I've just been waiting to see him laugh. I want to genuinely look. Let the record show. Bridget is Bridget's jaw is now on the floor. You're totally right. I Barack Obama. You've, we've seen him like caught in laughter. Right. Wait. Just that where you're bellied over. Whatever it is. It is. I'm sure it's happened for him, but for some reason, he never is caught on camera, never is caught truly laughing. Well, we could talk about fathers doing a number on sons. <laughs> there was that unbelievable, I think we had it, no, I think it was maybe in the Wayne Barrett book, where some, a reporter jokingly walked up to Fred Trump and said uh, some joke about your son being killed, killed in a plane crash, and, and like mm-hmm. Fred Trump laughed about it. Like there was the, the dynamic between Fred Trump and Donald Trump is fascinating. Well, look, he's not the first president to have daddy issues. Right. In fact, I have an argument um, uh, among my unwritten books is about presidents and their daddy issues. The, the point being this. And in fact, my wife and I have taken it a step further. Yeah. We think we think successful people need a chip. Right. That that basically what and, and there's nothing like a parental issue to Add a chip, and with men, their fathers. Teddy, oh. Teddy Roosevelt being the principal. Look, I, I, yeah. I. Hello, I am. Uh, my name's Chuck Todd, and I have a chip of, uh, on my shoulder about my dad. You Me know, too. everybody has the chip. For for Barack Obama, it was where's dad? Right. Bill Clinton was where's dad? For George W. Bush, it's living up to dad. For right. George H. W. Bush, living up to dad. It is fascinating. There's something about. Um, and look, I think the one of the undercovered aspects of Hillary Clinton is. Um, her relationship with her father was very, very troubling because I think her father was just a tough, a, a borderline. You don't want to use the word. But no, you don't want to use the M word. Yeah. But basically, the this was a 1950s father, right? Because my mother grew up very similarly, right? In fact, similar part of, of Illinois. Um, she grew up with a family business. It was offered to the son, not the daughters. Right. right? That sort of atmosphere. This was the 1950s. That is how she grew up. Even though, she was, father, even though she was the Cordelia to his Lear. But the yeah. two boys got all the attention. The two boys, you know, the, 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 the football player of Penn State. And, you know, so, again, this was, but it was a driver for her. Yeah. It, it definitely, you could see it. There was something about it. First five chapter of Carl uh, Bernstein's book mm-hmm. on her uh, are really d- uh, write about that in a way that no one else did. But ba- uh, back, okay, back to the pajama interviews for one sec. The, um, the one thing I would say about that, and I do want to challenge you on that. You are totally right about print reporters. Uh, and, you know, I got nailed on some WikiLeaks stuff where I'm doing my tradecraft and it does not look good when it's exposed to the light of day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I fess up on that stuff. But uh, the one thing is, it's we're talking about visuals and impressions of power. This is the same thing with the empty podium shtick mm-hmm. uh, when CNN and MSNBC showed the empty podium. By saying you are willing to, ex- this is a guy who's very interested in leverage and power dynamics. Sure. When you are saying, I will accept you on the phone, mm-hmm. it, and I haven't accepted other people on the phone, didn't that send a message to voters that this guy is more important and more powerful than other people? It may have sent that message. It wasn't obviously nobody. Right. No, nobody was thinking about that in this way. It was. Look, I, I think. Was it, wait, not, do you think he was? Do you think he was thinking? I'm. I no, am. No, no, he had. He'd been doing phone interviews with CNBC and Fox Business for and Fox and Friends right. for the last five years, right? As right. A, contractually, if I'm not mistaken, right. It was like Mondays were Fox and Friends days, Tuesdays was CNBC day, right. or vice versa, whatever it is. But right. so he was doing this for the last five years. So. For him, it was just a normalized routine. Sometimes he does TV interviews, sometimes, but for the most part, if, you know, I'll do phoners and, oh, that show won't take it, well, that show will. You know, that's been, you want to talk about a problem that makes it so that you want to take a stand. Yeah. Right? Everybody wants to take a stand um, when it comes to, well, you, you should refuse to print this and you should refuse to do this. We're so fractured that it doesn't matter. Yeah. So you do have to ask yourself, is it better to is it better to ask him questions and make him answer and get some answers out of him 
or is it better not to have asked those questions at all? Right. And um, but you did decide not to do it any longer because it felt it. it, it look, for Sunday morning, I, I said this. I will do it on my cable TV show. Right. That's different. Uh, I will not do it on Sunday mornings. I, I do feel like Sunday morning. I was preserving something on Sunday morning. Did you change his be behavior? Uh, Here, here's what I'll, yeah. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. So we we said no. He threw out a phone and we said no. Um, why not a TV studio in Palm Beach? And they said yes. And that changed dynamic for me. And I was like, okay. See, I agree with you. I disagreed with your point about the the satellite stuff because I think I, I don't think the satellites that much. Forcing I, I a guy personally, to, I don't think yeah. the satellites that much different. Make him make I, him put on a pair of shoes and tie his tie. Look, but they. Yeah, they could still be in pajamas. They could still be whatever. I I don't think it is as, um, you know, a fate. Put it this way: if every one of your print reporting stories, they're to me, they're not as good unless you tell me everybody you interviewed is face to face, so that you have their expressions. Point is, I hear you, but imagine if you set that bar as your job, would you ever get a print story done? I I will tell you something. I do. I'd say now I have the luxury, unlike a lot of my colleagues, of being liberated from a lot of deadlines. So when I'm working on a piece for six weeks, I do. I'll talk with somebody on the phone a couple of times and then we'll meet up and I'll look at them in the eye. And that's a totally different. As you know, that's a totally different dynamic. You can interrupt people. Oh, yeah. Look, face to face is the most important thing. So the biggest criticism I get on interviews. Yeah. um, Usually is you're rude to so and so. Right. And it won't matter if it's left or right. You were so rude to so and so. Anytime anybody's accused me of being rude, it's been on a satellite interview. No kidding. Nobody ever accuses me of being rude in a face-to-face. Because why? Right. I'm giving, sorry, uh, for those that are not, I'm giving visual cues. And by the way, you are a, a gesticulation junkie. Yes. I totally, <laughs> I totally will admit that. I, I absolutely, if I, if I, what is it, the joke about Rahm Emanuel when he chopped his middle finger off, it rendered him mute. That's right. If you chopped my hands off, it would render me, you know, then my stubs would be coming around. You'd really have to get me at the shoulders. Ick, by you'd the have way. To wa- you'd have to walking dead me. Yuck. Right, which is to get rid of the full <laughs> arms, and then I'd be, you know, who knows. But the point is, is you can, you can do visual cues. There's so many right. ways without it seeming argumentative right on a satellite wait wait wait, uh, it's annoying to the viewer right it's not good for the viewer what's what's best for the viewer is that face-to-face dynamic uh who's the best at this that you've ever seen like when you were first because by the way you made a big uh, leap up from you know from you know it's interesting you say that i i go i've been all over the map on what i find the different ways that i find it depends on the Different styles work for different people. So I don't think one style um, that I would say sticks out. You know, so Tim had a had a very specific style, and that worked really well for people in power all the time. Um, but you wouldn't want to use the same style for every person that that you had on uh, on there. Um, you know, I think. I don't think anybody does a – so, for instance, I'll give you this. I yeah. think Matt Lauer in a, in a five-minute interview, I don't think there's anybody in America that can get more out of five minutes than Lauer. Than Lauer. And he's – obviously, he has to be good at right. that. I am always stunned and impressed with how well – because I can tell you how many times that you know I'll do – and it's like – you do a pre-tape. That first five minutes is the you want to do right. over again. Right, right. You can't. Well, you don't get that luxury on morning television. So, what is that about compression? About establishing likability? The fact that everyone knows who Matt Lauer is already? No, I think it's just something that you perfect over time. I think I'm always more impressed. It's not the interviews with people you're familiar with. Right. It's how it's the interview like when you're when when the Oakland fire or right. the tornado being. It's that. Um, but I think he is really good at getting a lot in less than five minutes, which is, that is a, so that's what I mean. Right. There's different styles and different, uh, um, but it sounds to me like help. you're very restless. Like, like you feel, <laughs> I mean, you're just very restless about the medium. You're thinking about the medium. A hundred percent. You're at the apex of where you are and you're, you, I'm not going to say you're trapped because you have a lot of modalities. You do the MTP daily thing, which must be much which must be a real relief for you. You're able to sort of do it in a oh, different way. Oh, the, the point of, yeah. it's funny you say that. Yes. I've added a lot of things to what Meet the Press is. Meet the Press Daily. Right. We're now doing a podcast. We're doing some other things. Ultimately, it all gets at scratching my own itches. Right. You know, which is, that's what 100% true, which is, look, I want to go, f- I would do Mike Pence for the full hour. Right. Which 10 years ago we would have done. Right. Tim would have done, and the viewer would have accepted it. Viewer doesn't accept that anymore. 
You're you're a trap of the viewer. Is there okay? There is there is evidence on that. No, there's evidence, but is there any um, way that you can change? You know, politicians talk about this all the time. Trump, I think, or Kellyanne said it today at an event that we did, mm-hmm. where you a change. We don't. Uh, Reagan didn't use polling to tell him which way the wind was blowing. He used it as a way to lead. Right? Mm-hmm. Is there any way that you could take the hit on that and see if you can't take an audience with you? Or is the I think uh, it, I think it, it, it. Look for for certain guests. Yes. Gone thirty minutes with Obama. We've done thirty minutes with Trump. Right. Uh, did thirty minutes with Hillary. Um, the point is, is that yes, but I think there's only a handful of people, unfortunately, that sustain the viewer attention. And at the end of the day, you know. Uh, th- th- there's there's always multiple dynamics in there. I so for instance, I think you can't do. I want John Brennan for a full hour. Yeah, me too. But I don't know if the if you have a if you can fill the room. We right. were talking about filling the yep. room. Yep. I don't know if you can fill the room for everybody else for the full hour. Um, and so now I've got multiple ways to still do that full hour right. somehow. Right. So the best fifteen minutes. Is on Sunday, and then this, and this. But and the this, problem, you know. though, is you, you. It would be really cool to be able to pull that stuff into the period of maximum amplification. Uh, I, you know, it, it, of course. Right. And the thing is, is right. that we are dealing in a fragmented world um, where there's, you know, at the end of the day, we still only, yep. you know, we still only have a finite amount of space. Let me add just a couple uh, more questions, and I want to end on something else. But um, uh, with Trump in general, we're dealing with it with a with a both a president and a candidate who has an estranged relationship from the truth. I don't think there's any other way to sort of characterize that. That's been proven. Well, he's a marketer. He's a salesman. I've never met a salesman that didn't exaggerate or or worse. Right. And ultimately, I think some of the, one of the things that we always got to remember about him, because he actually has the salesman mentality, he will never say a negative word about you in person. It's true. You to know, your face. To your face. He will always compliment, always find a way to compliment. I mean, he said every salesman trick in the book. I mean, it's almost like go read Dale Carnegie. You really feel like you're getting the Dale Carnegie. I, Carnegie s- I feel him. like sometimes I've gotten the Dale Carnegie. Not all the time. We've had the longer we've gotten to know each other, the blunter we are with each other. Maybe that's healthy. Maybe it's unhealthy. I don't know. Um, I I think I, I go back and forth that I, I sometimes say I think of Trump as um, – uh, as uh, the character in, um, oh, what was the agent movie? Um, show me the money. Uh, oh, um, the, the show um, me the money movie. Uh, the the Cuba Gooding, the one, yeah, the one Cuban Goody Junior's character, Tim Cruise, where uh, Tom, Tom Cruise, Cruise where Tom, Tom Cruise. Cruise and him are yelling at each other, and he says, yeah. "You think we're yelling at each other? I'm. Just, we're just starting to communicate." Right. I actually think when you when when Trump riles you up and you banter back with him, right. He's like, great, now we're finally communicating. Is he self-deprecating in private? No. So is he, I don't want to ask you if he's a normal guy because he's clearly demonstrated he's not a normal guy. But by the way, no, poli- I know, I know. No, I don't think politicians are normal. No, I know. Okay. Well. No, but relative, whatever normal is. There's a spectrum. Is, <laughs> I say it this way. <laughs> I think it's a, not everybody. It It is a different type of personality that that needs public affirmation right. to do a job. It's a, it's a weird dynamic. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know if I would have the guts. Right. I admire people that have the guts to put their, their positions at the will of a bunch of people they don't know. And the fact that at the end of the day, their success or failure depends on what those people they don't know think of them. That's a, that's, I, that is a, but what I'm saying, that's not, when, I, when, when we use the word normal, people say what's not normal and somebody will take it out of context that we're right. saying politicians aren't normal. But this is not normal. It's not a normalized no, thing. It's different. It's why, it's why people would say the, the, the beer thing with George W. Bush, a guy who hadn't had a drink in 30 years. Yeah, I mean, right. it, it just goes to, I think that, and especially presidents, I mean, but wait, how wait. many people look in the mirror and think I can run the world? Well, wait a second. How many people look in the mirror and can't stop looking in the mirror? That's the other thing, right? Uh, the question with him is, can, is he interactive enough with people? Is he enough of a listener? Is he somebody who can, you mentioned the laugh thing, you mentioned the self-deprecating thing. Is this guy capable of processing inputs in a normal enough way to make rational decisions? I think so. What gives you that confidence? He doesn't want to be unpopular. That's a powerful thing. And I think ultimately, um, I think ultimately, if, if everybody's like, oh, you know, I get a, the, I, every, the, the guardrail, there, there's a lot of guardrails in our democracy. All right. The founders are amazing. 
It is amazing. When you think about it, just read the emoluments clause, and then you realize, good God, what didn't these guys think of? Right. You were about to say something else. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean this in a positive way. It's like there's always... There I is, was going to get you to say the F word. No, the Constitution. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 they thought of... There is a... there is, And I loved it. It was a constitutional professor who said this. He says, you know, the beauty of the Constitution is there's there, there's some parts of it that lie dormant until it doesn't... Until it shouldn't. Yeah. You know, the yeah. emoluments clause is a perfect example of one. But the other guardrails we have is is popularity. The other guardrails you have is 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 sometimes personal success or failure. You know what is Trump's main beef with the media? Its main beef is when he doesn't isn't getting you know he doesn't feel like he's getting praised or right. he's getting enough credit or whatever it is. But what does that also tell you about him? He wants to be seen as successful, and you feel and ulti- he wants to be successful. So, and that's look, ultimately the frame that the picture gets painted. And at. I think and that's the frame he's gonna. And look, I think he's an any means necessary kind of guy. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's going to present massive challenges to our system. Do you okay? say, what do you think? I think he's a transactional guy at the end of the day. Whether it's negotiating with you or me on, a, on when to interview him, he doesn't like having somebody else in between making those decisions. Yep. Whether it's dealing with my director to find out the right lighting right. for him, or whether it's dealing with Which he has picking, done. Right? Or yeah. picking up the phone and having his own conversation with the head of Carrier. Right. Rather than having the chief of staff make the call. The right. point is, is that that's who he is. He's kind of hands on. He's kind of transactional, which is what a sales guy is. Right. right. You're, you're sort of you work for yourself. Ultimately, you eat what you kill. Right. And so. When you say, OK, so he's got quirks, a lot of personality yeah. quirks. I ultimately believe the guardrails for him are popularity. And that matters to him. Uh, one last thing. I want. There's a splinter in your biography. There's just something. Uh, that I uh, that just kind of sticks out. You were a um, uh, you didn't graduate from GW, but you were a music minor, double major for a while. Till, so you till did. I ran out of till I till I was like, oh, I and you did composition, right? Oh, it was it was well, it was it, GW didn't have this, but I essentially was trying to create my own music performance major. Other music schools have music performance. I was a French horn player. You're a French horn player. Mm-hmm. For those people who do not know, it is the most complicated brass instrument to play, right? Uh, of course. <laughs> and, and it has it's the instrument with the most range uh you know it's got a, i i had a five i have a five octave range on it um what they call the embrasure uh embouchure i'm sorry it's all right, sorry, it's all right. but uh you know it, you can almost go as low as a tuba and if you're really good go as high as a trumpet or a cornet so the point is you can create there's a lot of range you have with a, with a french horn that other brass instruments don't um and so I was trying to create a performance major out of there. So, you know, it was it was what uh, made you get into the French horn? Oh, I, we're going to go. We're going to end yeah. where we began. Yeah. My dad played the French horn. Really? Yes. And he was pretty good at it. Um, and degree of difficulty was important, too. Uh, he said to me, he said, if you're going to. So music was a big part. My father, my my grandfather played it. Both my grandparents played instruments. My father and his sister were music was a big part. Of, of life so you know I had piano lessons starting at five and hammered into me didn't love it but was musically theory I was in music theory wise it, it caught on to it well that's fast. piano right that's piano yeah. you learn it and all that yep. stuff and when I picked an instrument my dad always said look you can be a great trumpet player and go nowhere you can be a great French horn player and get free college um he was right was he supportive 100% I mean like when you play and stuff was he uh he was uh so he was tough he was tough. What was interesting is his. Uh, I ended up having the same teacher as him for a while uh, that he used back back in the day, um, and he he was uh, he wanted he was ridiculously supportive, but never wanted. To, he was afraid of turning me off the instrument. He was afraid of. It was a weird dynamic that he had. Wow. He wasn't comfortable pushing it like he. It's like he ultimately, like the only reason I picked it is because of him. And then all of a sudden he backed way off. And uh, looking back, I'm disappointed in that. But I think he, I don't know. I think it was his own personal failures in his life. I think he felt as if he wasn't very successful um, career-wise. Just had a bunch of careers that just didn't work out. But he was really good. He was a really good musician. And I think it was just, it for him it was a reminder of yet another unfulfilled but also the re- but also a, a repository of his his self confidence and a, a knowledge that he was able to do on. Uh, uh, do you still do you play the French horn? Do you play a, anything? Yes, a little bit. 
Um, what do you number one gridiron sort of roped me back into playing French Mozart horn. was composed for it. Oh yeah, well you yeah. know the the famous Mozart concertos right. were done as a gag. What people don't know. Oh really? They were originally done as a gag because it was actually written before the French horn had valves. So I'm not going to get into the history of it. But there was a time <laughs> in the French horn where the hand. So you know you see people put the hand in the bell, right? And you actually you, you use their hand right. to change pitch a little bit. Well, that's the pitch. way all music. Yeah, um, yeah, and. So the old, pol- basically German postal, the French horn is a derivative of the old German postal horn, you know, announcing that the mail is here and it's just like one little uh, circle of brass. Anyway, and the Mozart concertos were Mozart playing a gag on his pal who was a no French horn player. Now they're terrific. They're probably, arguably, among his most, it, people don't, go listen to a Mozart concerto, you realize, oh my God, it gets played all the time. All the time. All the time. A sort of overhead music, elevator music, department store music, you name it, in, and it's always played. Last question. Uh, do you ever compose anything? Oh, I had to. I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> I didn't enjoy music composition. It was one of those things, you, when you take it as a class, right, right. and you're, you know, you're forced to write stuff. Um, Bach chorale, you know, and you literally are moving up the uh, history of music, and you're having to write a Bach chorale and all this stuff. So, um, you know, I I dabbled a little bit in trying to to compose, but I didn't. I, I I wanted to master the stuff that was already there. What's the residual of all that, and what you do right now? That's it. Final question. Residual. I think. Um, I think music uh, uh, helps teach it, helps reinforce discipline in life. And I think that mas- help, you never master music, right. right? You just, you continue. But it is, it is sort of a, um, you know, you have the lessons you learn with music. You got to practice. You got to be determined. You got to be focused. I, I just think it's a, in the same way that I believe this, the, the, the one sport that did more for me, that taught me more about working with others than any other is football. Yeah. And I've always been of two minds on the whole football issue um, for kids because on one hand I mean right. you know 10 other people relying on you not to make a mistake that's a that's a huge life important lesson right huge that you you individually cannot succeed without the 10 other people gigantic music in a different way taught me a type of discipline that I would like to think helps me today well not to make you toot your own horn but uh, thanks hey for t- look at yeah. that a horn gag dad humor thanks Chuck we could out dad humor each other here <laughs> yes we, we could alright brother take care